Welcome, welcome, welcome to another episode of Marvel Cinematic University, the show that talks about everything in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I am your host for now, Jay Christie. Anthony is running a little late, but Anthony Canton III will be with us in a few minutes. But we got two exciting guests that we got to get to. Uh, They are co-authors of the upcoming book that we're very excited for, MCU, The Reign of Marvel Studios. It's Dave Gonzalez and Joanna Robinson. Dave and Joanna, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having having us. Yeah. And so we are here, first off, to talk about the second episode of Secret Invasion, the current show that Marvel has on. And um, while we have you and while Anthony's running a little late, I'm just curious, what were your original impressions going in? How did you feel about the first episode before we just start covering the second one? Yeah, I was uh, excited to see what this series uh, is going for. I love the Marvel Cinematic Universe because it can be so wacky and I grew up reading comics. So seeing that sort of uh, type of plotting move out into the general public and be appreciated or in some cases rejected by them uh, has been really exciting. So uh, this year has been, you know, Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantum Mania and Guardians Volume 3, one very weird inner space, one very weird outer space. So I was excited to return Uh, back to Earth and see what the new status quo was in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Uh, So I was excited going into the first episode. I think the first episode uh, has some lackluster action uh, photography that uh, made me sort of raise an eyebrow together with the opening, which I didn't enjoy for a couple of reasons. Uh, That being said, it does, it is only a six episode limited series. So one of six uh, is plenty of time to set the table. And I was really excited to see episode two sort of define what we're actually doing here a little bit more. Cause I think episode one was a great reintroduction to Fury who's been gone and has been damaged. Uh, But now we're getting into the plots, hopefully. Yeah. Yeah. I was, um, I want to echo what Dave said about like being so excited when the MCU decides to do very specific flavors of something. And I'm a huge fan of the espionage genre in general. So to know that they were going to take secret invasion, which is like a, you know, big popular comic crossover event and put it through the filter of, you know, the John le Carré sort of spy came in from the cold, uh, sort of stories that we've seen over the years and loved. And then to use Nick Fury, you know, our, our consummate Marvel spy as part of all of that, that got me so excited. And then as the casting news came in and you're like, Amelia Clark is here, Olivia Coleman's here. What are we doing? Let's go. Kingsley Benadir, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, so my hopes were really, really high. And I was actually very excited for like a six episode, like very contained, very purposeful story. And they're, you know, they're calling it an, like a contained event, right? So there's not going to be a secret invasion season two. Like this is, this is it start to finish unless this becomes like their most popular show, which, you know, so far, unfortunately it is not. Um, and then I watched episode one and, and it, you know, it, it was a little drier and a little slower than I wanted, even though I like can enjoy a dry, slow spy story uh, with the rest of them. Um, there were pockets of greatness. Most of it provided by the, impeccable olivia coleman who can do anything anywhere and um and yeah that's where i am but we're not alone anymore we should yes no <laughs> yes the wonderful anthony Kant on the third who i'm tossing over hosting duties like we just finished discussing what they thought about episode one so you really didn't miss 
much. I mean, you missed all the great chat before the show, but you didn't miss anything <laughs> well, on the show. Well, firstly, uh, greetings and salutations to both of you. Uh, appreciate having you on. Sorry for showing up like Nick Fury, showing up as late as Nick Fury has to this uh, scroll invasion <laughs> situation. This is what happens when you have two kids. <laughs> Yeah, but at least you weren't just like chilling on a space station. You were taking care yeah. of yourself. Yeah. So, you know. <laughs> <laughs> wonderful stuff. Wonderful stuff. But yes, episode two promises, 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 promises. Where there's there's a lot of stuff that happened in this episode. And I think that more so than anything else, the I think the highlight was the acting all over. There was a lot of just really chewy. Uh, meaty scenes that I mean, when you talk about Sam Jackson or Don Cheadle, Olivia Coleman herself, just incredible stuff. Uh, uh, Kingsley Benadier, just like all over the place. There's a lot of places to go, but I think I'll start with this in particular because I think a lot of the talk about episode one was a little bit how slow it was. In in lamest terms, I felt like it was MCU for dummies as they tried to you know, exposition their way and let the casuals know what's going on. But in this instance, we got we felt like a lot more plot advancement. And Joanna, I'll start with you in terms of what we got as far as Fury is concerned. We see this little backstory with the meeting with the Skrulls and the relationship with Gravik and how yeah. that develops. As far as that's concerned, what did you think about Fury's plot advancement as we moved along in episode two? thought it was so interesting like two things were really interesting to me number one is like we got we got a hint of his sort of more personal connection to gravic in episode one when talos tells him sort of like gravic took this took your absence especially hard and so we're like okay there's something like personal there so to see him meet gravic when gravic is a child gravic has lost his parents um to know that they have like three decades of history these these two people and especially like gravic maybe looking up to fury all that sort of stuff i think we love this idea in the MCU and they come back to it time and time again of like, you create your own demons, you know, that's a Tony Stark line, but like, we, we love that idea as it, as it uh, propagates. And so like, as Talos accuses him, as Rhodey accuses him, as Gravik and Absentia accuses him, we see all the ways in which Nick Fury's failings or his running away from a problem has provided the current circumstances that he's grappling with. So I love that, right? Nick Fury, not innocent, right? There's there's a lot of yeah. things that are tough looks for our guy here. And then, of course, the scene between Samuel Jackson and Don Cheadle is so, um, as you say, like chewy, dense, complicated layers upon layers. The performance and the like sort of personal fire that both of these actors brought into that scene uh, was really compelling to watch. And what is also true, Samuel Jackson has talked a lot in press interviews about this idea of Nick Fury as a lone gunman. And to get to a lone gunman space, you have to watch this person lose everything, right? So we saw him lose Maria Hill uh, in, in, in the first episode. Here he's been kicked out uh, by Rhodey in this episode. Comes home to his wife, who is a Skrull. And mm -hmm. we don't know if he knows she's a Skrull. We don't know. Like... We have a lot of questions about that, right? Big revelation. Yeah. Um, so w will there will something happen that he loses that as well? And then he truly has nothing. And then we, and, you know, and Talos, 
he kicks Talos off the train, right? So he's just sort of like shedding allies. So what what is going to be left when it's just Nick Fury versus this problem? You know? Yes, it's. Well, I mean, when you think about it, when you're at wit's end, and I I love to use the term hashtag washed agenda. Oh, yeah. Fury's out here. <laughs> Fury's out here being cooked. You guys he's listen just... to the first episode, so you know, but I really can't emphasize enough. Uh, this one he's lucky because it's about a 70 year old person but he'll find yes. any story he'll find one person like mildly limp and be like yep i see myself in that guy yeah i think the thing that's amazing you have this great scene with 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 fury and Rhodes. they're going back and forth back and forth back and forth Rhodes just kicks him out but fury makes sure he gets in that one last line which is a wonderful line then he he strong arms his guard and then it's like, okay, we see a little physicality, though. The old dog still got it. But then he goes outside <laughs> and sits down, and man looks like he needs a bed. He needs, a <laughs> he needs to sleep. Oh, my goodness. Just incredible stuff from Sam Jackson there. Just very, very exciting. But, um, but Dave, I also wanted to get your perspective on, on, on Nick. And I think I want to move to the Talo scene, because that was actually one that was underrated in its own right. The tell me something I don't know game was a, was a very fun scene. What did you think of that interplay and seemingly the back and forth that they had where this is kind of the first time that we've seen a little bit of a, of an impasse between the two. Yeah. Uh, I mean, not only an impasse, but they, when you, you take the episode in a whole and all the revelations we have about Fury's background, uh, it's sort of two dads that have not only failed their, you know, direct children or adopted children, but now apparently a whole race. And uh, Talos obviously feels worse about that than Fury, but Fury has been, you know, uh, colored by his experiences as a black American to come out with the uh, overall view that there isn't enough room on this planet. We don't have enough empathy uh, on this planet to actually house another species, which is sad, but the scene walks you down the path to why he's there. Uh, I think like there's some amazing character work being done on this show. And I know there's like a rule in cinematic storytelling and television storytelling where you don't, you show and you don't tell. I actually like the telling more in secret invasion. Like you don't have to show me, you know, the world council of people who like are exuding evil uh, change their faces, uh, have Fury and Talos sit down and have a conversation on a train uh, about, you know, both feeling for the other person and then Fury being like, wait, there's a there's a million scrolls here? Like, that is a exponentially different problem than what I thought and apparently what Fury thought we were actually dealing with. Like, right. it's already happened. We've been secretly invaded. And uh, I also like uh, setting it back in 97 and yeah. uh, that way that we have, you know, years and years, decades of it, almost two decades of MCU history in universe uh, for people to sort of swap in and out with their, their scroll replacements. Uh, I think this episode did a great job of exploding the possibilities of the story world while also refocusing sort of uh, on Fury and Talos and what uh, their personal stakes are and whatever's happening. I, could, I couldn't agree with that more. And before I throw it to Jake, I'm going to take this time to once again say that where is Carol Danvers? Where is she in all this? Because, again, did she leave for a couple of cigarettes and some milk? And she never came back. What happened to her? 
Uh, we'll see in the Marvels. Mom, Carol Danvers. Oh well, my what I, But what I love about that, uh, you know, sorry, yes, not sorry to like jump in, but like what I love about that is that her absence is a core plot of the Marvels, right? Like there's resentment all over the place for right. her, you know. So what she's dealing with, and like in its original scheduling, the Marvels was supposed to come out like right if if secret invasion had had the similar release date right as secret invasion was ending right so it's almost like mirrors or bookends of like the nick fury abandonment and the carol carol's been gone a lot longer right and she comes back for event uh, end game and then just pieces out again like i it's the carol situation is is a corner that they wrote themselves into of like how do we explain Mm -hmm. that carol is just gone most of the time because she's way too overpowered and could end any conflict at any time um yeah it's a big question Right, right, for sure. And and, and Jake, uh, you know, back to the Fury point uh, from from your perspective in this episode, what what was the thing that stood out to you the most about the plot advancement that we got? I think uh, that, you know, Joanna brought up the lone gunman thing. And I think that, like, he, that is where he is. And I think that he is, there's a lot of outside forces that are getting him there. But I think the thing that makes it interesting, and I think that makes most, like, lone, you know, one last ride stories interesting is that he's not blameless for putting himself in this position. Like, he has isolated himself through his own failings, and that, like, there's... You can tell in the scene with Rhodes that the Rhodes is kind of angry at him because he's like, if this was something that you reached out to me before, I could help you. But, like, you are putting me in a position where, like, I can't stand by you anymore because you're... The thing about him, which I think he is having trouble understanding, is that... Maybe he doesn't want to understand that he is not reliable Nick Fury mastermind anymore. And, like, if he's not reliable, then he's not valuable to other people. Like, he's... The whole thing about Nick Fury is that he is the guy that can keep everything in order or, you know, be aware of all threats. And if people don't see him as that anymore, then they can't trust him. And I think he doesn't know what to do. He, he I think, has lost his fastball of what to do when he walks into a room and people don't implicitly just trust him because he's Nick Fury. And I think that he's kind of unmoored because he had this crisis of faith and now he's trying to solve another issue, but he can't, as you like to, he, he doesn't have, the, the fastball's not, he's got to use his guile now. The fastball's only hitting 88. He's got to, you know, do well, use other Slider things. Slider change up, mm-hmm. curveball, baby. That's the, that's the, that's the <laughs> only he, way to he's go. He's on the Greg Maddox <laughs> regimen right now. And like, <laughs> and so I think that the way that Samuel Jackson's playing that, I think is really interesting because it's not, because while obviously you're supposed to be on his side because you know the threat is real, He's not playing it as super competent guy against the world. It's like you can see from the outside why people would be like, Nick, what are you doing? You're ragged. You're ragged. You're, you know, got a big beard. You are talking crazy. You've been gone. Like you understand why people that he's true trust him are like, I'm sorry, man. You don't, you're in over your head. And so I like that because it, it would be a bit annoying if people were to, if they were to try to treat Nick Fury being gone for five years as no big thing. Like it's a big thing. Yeah, no, I I couldn't agree with you more. And since since we were talking about roads and all this other stuff, I think the the thing that I brought up in episode one was the and I know Joanna, this is kind of your corner here as far as the who's the scroll and who's not a scroll. <laughs> yeah. The first the first glance in episode one when Rhodes is with President Ritson, I'm like, huh, huh, I don't know about all this. He he seems seems a little too a little too extra spy type for somebody who's more of a take charge type of person. And in this, this conversation that Fury and Rhodes has kind of leaves me on the fence because Rhodes in a lot of ways is right. 
in in his words and in his emotions towards Fury as far as putting him in a difficult position. However, at the same time, a well-trained scroll that's been around for a while would know how to set Fury off and kind of be able to take control in that type of way. So, Joanna, I ask you. Yes. If you had to guess, do yeah. you think there's a possibility that Rhodey is a scroll? I I really think Brody is a scroll. Um yeah, and I I really really do. And like I think that what I really loved is the um the, the NATO scene was especially interesting because like we in this episode we meet um uh you know the scroll council and we meet we find yeah. out that Christopher McDonald's character, the like, you know, Fox News-esque uh, Chris Stearns is a scroll. <laughs> and so when he's on his channel and call and like undermining the scroll narrative, that's that's a good indication to us that there might be scrolls on either side of any or you know, like he's on on their like Fox News saying, like, this is a false flag. This is something else, you know what I mean? And so, but we know that he's uh, you know, may not be in on every level of graphics plot at that point, but like he knows what's going on, right? And so, I don't think like for, at first glance the NATO scene because Rhodey is arguing with people who we know are scrolls. Yeah. You might be like, well, like he can't be a scroll, but I'm like, I don't know. I think they're just on every side of this thing, all over the place. There's a million of them, like you know, all over the all over the scene. And so, I think that scene with Fury. You could read it a number of ways, but what happens at the end of this? Fury is disempowered, and that is what the scrolls want. And so I just, and I think, I think they have to make a character we've known for a while yeah. be a scroll. And Rhodey is, I think, a really good candidate for that. And, and I talked about this on on the Ringerverse, the other podcast I do, but for a, a bunch of different reasons. But one of them being, um, Rhodey has no superpowers. Right. And so there's going to be this whole plot, it seems, as as is indicated in this episode of the scrolls trying to, like, pursue their own superpowers so they can imitate the Avengers or at least fight the Avengers that they need to. But right now he can a, a scroll can pretend to be Rhodey and put the suit on and not have to have any superpowers in order to uh, pretend to be an Avenger at this point. So, yeah, I'm mm. I'm, I'm I'm like. I'm I'm ready to be wrong. I'm often wrong, but like I'm like 92 percent in on Rhodey's. Well, it's it, yeah. It, Go ahead, Dave. It, yeah. it, it's also an opportunity to fix Rhodey's character. Uh, like it's not the most developed character. Uh, he's in a lot of key situations a lot of the time and does what we need him to do, which is great. Don Cheadle is great as him, given very you know limited actual character development. Uh, how good of an arc is it? If at the end of this, they find the real Rhodey who doesn't know Tony Stark has died, then all of a sudden, oh my God. then all of a sudden it's like this Rhodey that's been really close to the government, even as the government's doing horrible things, makes a lot more sense. And it leads us into something like Armor Wars, where there are actually character-based stakes in Rhodey that isn't just, I'm you know tied to the government and therefore the Stark technology is my problem. If he wakes up and he's like, I lost my best friend and he sacrificed, you know, to save the entire world and he has to wake up and deal with that. That's a great starting point for whatever's next mm. for Rhodey. So I think like even though him being a, sc a scroll would be huge because that character has been around since uh, the first Iron Man. So it's one of our longest standing MCU characters. Uh, it, it's also a great place to pivot and sort of 
refocus on Rhodey as his own individual character instead of like a sidekick or a government attache. So I would love it. And I think it makes just complete story sense that that's where we're going. I okay, so I floated because you <laughs> shared that theory with me last week, Dave, and I floated it to Mallory in the pod last week. She had a, a smart rebuttal to just the part about like not knowing that Tony Stark is dead because like I we we all still agree that we think that Rhodey is a scroll. The question is when, right? Mm-hmm. What yeah. she pointed out is that in Endgame when Tony is dying, there's only three people with him and one of them's Rhodey, and she's like, I just will have a real hard time if like it's pepper and peter and a scroll with tony stark when he died well like, that that we would gotta, be a problem. you have to you know? extend a little bit onto what being a scroll for in human form for that long means and if they are using the brain fracking method on him then you have a scroll personality that's completely in the back seat in the sunken place if you will to this Rhodey personality that that scroll could care as much for Tony Stark as Rhodey did. If he's been around for like five years, if the first Rhodey saw Tony Stark being like, I'm Iron Man. And then got to put on the, the iron Patriot uh, suit once and then got swapped out somewhere like that leaves room for like, I, I I'm, I'm hesitant to treat any scroll as just alien bad guy because they're really trying to do the work to say like these uh, this is a a culture that has different opinions inside of it and you know graphics out there killing his own operatives so like obviously they're antagonists within scrolls i, I just uh i think there's a lot more uh, i guess it's coming from like the comics where you can't like actually kill a character but you can put it through like a whole bunch of cycles yeah. this is like the jarvis is a scroll of the mcu would be rody's been a scroll for a period of time that's interesting. I mean, I would even give word or or clearance to the idea that it's possible that maybe Rhodes was taken over after Endgame, mainly because in the way that they characterize a lot of the MCU series in the Disney Plus shows, and even the movies to a degree, is that they are all... Kind of, all the heroes are trying to find their way. All the people are trying to find their way, way after the blip. So, I mean, it could be possible, especially with all of these. I mean, you almost wonder in terms of the Skrull Council, how many, when did these assimilations happen? We don't really know. And I think that's the best part because now it has the wheel. It makes my wheels turn and think like, you know, you mentioned Rhodes and everybody involved in the Skrull Council. What happens with that? Will there be another character that we hold near and dear that we might see in some type of cameo or something like that? You, 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 thanks. You, you made me go down the rabbit now, hole. And uh, who can, who do you trust? I have an important ahead, question, Jake. though. What if, because you mentioned, like, oh, the scroll is the reason why he's so close to the government. What if the real Rhodes wakes up and he's more conservative? I mean, that's <laughs> that's where you could go. <laughs> a right wing armor wars would be a choice, but I, you know, I would show up. I'm, I'm mostly saying that because, AC, I want you to talk a little bit. You don't, you don't have to go as detailed as you did on the Discord, but I want you to talk a little bit about uh-huh. what you're feeling about, yeah. but how you been feeling about Rhodes with what some of the stuff he's been doing in this Yeah, year. There's, um, there's, a lot of, uh, there's a lot of respectability politics when it comes to Mr. Rhodes. Mm-hmm. As far as his, his speak is concerned, and this isn't the first time that he's kind of alluded to his his political leanings on that. And when Fury gives the, the help a brother out situation, which again, that really kind of gets to it because that conversation more so than anything else, especially for 
if you gauge the the black people who watched this show, who watched that episode and saw that conversation, a lot of people were taken aback because oh, they're really doing this in terms of having this conversation as far as when Fury brings up the mediocre men of the world like uh, uh, Alexander Pierce running things and taking the power and being able to have the power and then Rhodes throwing it back in Fury's face. And this is one of the few instances where when Rhodes says that you're just as mediocre as him, at this point, it's not difficult to, to feel as the person watching it like, to a degree... Yeah, kinda, because it seems like you don't know what's going on either. So I think that's that that part of it, Jake. When you when you talk about Rhodes, is is a lot of fun. But I think it's fair. It's fair to question everything, and I think the design of the series is for you to literally question everything, not just the scrolls, but does Fury know what he's doing? And I think that's a that's a fair point. Uh, that there's a fair point to make there. But we're talking a lot about. We're talking a lot about scrolls, and we mentioned the scroll council and Gravik scenes. Seems like one thing that I like about the portrayal of Gravik so far is that it's a very get shit done type of person. There's not really a lot of hesitancy. There's a lot of um, resolute ideals, and that scene where he's talking to the rest of the scroll council and he goes war and then pounds the table. I was like, whoo. Ooh, yeah, Mr. Kingsley. Or just lifting a, lifting a gentleman up and gently placing him on a meat hook and killing him. Oh yeah. my God. <laughs> There's some great uh, graphic uh, yeah. in this episode. That guy's not going to take any prisoners. But what I, I wanted to ask yeah. you actually about, about your uh, washed agenda agenda, because what, yeah, I, sure. what I love about both Gaia and Gravik is they look so tired. Like Gravik has a lot <laughs> in him, but they look like when they're driving around, they're just like, I'm like, have you guys had he's enough just lying back today? in the car? Yeah, he's just like, he's like half asleep, right? And she's just like, Amelia Clark, absolutely gorgeous woman, has like these bags under her eyes. So I'm like, I guess it's it's not entirely comfortable to live in a nuclear silo or wherever it is they're living. Like they're, you know, they're they're stretched and they're stressed. These, uh, no, they're living. They're living double. No, they're living not double lives. In some ways, they're living triple lives because of the way that Gaia is searching. Um, she's curious about the what she finds on the screen. The 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 experimenting that's going on with the potential super scroll situation that we have. Well, we see Cull Obsidian. We see Groot. We see. Uh, I think it was it a Frost Giant on the screen as well. It's the, and the extremist formula. All of that is being considered there. So she's not only a Skrull pretending to be a human, she's also spying on somebody who could potentially kill her. And and she has her father, Talos, uh, on the other side of that as well, with her mother also being dead. So there's so much going on with that character that I'm looking forward to see Mm -hmm. being portrayed. But then when you talk about Gravik, yeah, when... The, the way that he talks about dogs being better than than humans in some ways and kind of the way that he's about that life, um, even with the even with being weird, it is tiring to be him in a way that you see it so far, because it's this, um, as Rhodes mentions to Fury, being uncompromising in his beliefs. And that is seeing Gravik and seeing Kingsley portray that has been so much fun to see, even though we haven't gotten like a lot of it. But the more that we do, it intrigues me more to see where that character goes. Jake, 
how did you feel about what you saw with with Kingsley's performance? Because it's it'll get lost in a lot of the stuff that we talk about here because there was so many good performances all over the place. But I thought uh, Kingsley in particular w- stood out pretty well. Yes, uh, I think that he is really he's his performance is calibrated to how he doesn't have a ton of big monologues or screen time because that's just not what he does. I think that he is. Um, like the, the way you talk about him being tired, I think the thing that he's tired of is that he is one of, um, you get the impression based on the fact that scrolls have a longer lifespan, that he's probably one of the younger scrolls that's there. And he's grown up exclusively in this world where like, he has no real memory. He doesn't have a lot of memories of a good time to be a scroll. And I think that he has the attitude that a lot of young radical people who grow up in a bad situation do, where it's just like, I'm tired of these adults telling me that compromise and waiting is the way to go why can't we just take things for our own and so like he doesn't need to go on a a a villainous monologue to explain himself you know you kind of just get it and i think that um he um, he immediately you immediately get the idea that he will kill literally anyone and like that's an obvious thing to say about a villain but i think in um I think in this day and age where, and I know I've complained about this before, where everyone wants villains to be in shades of gray, that they think that that means that, like, the villains can't be as bad. But it's like, no, he is a really bad guy and that he will kill a lot of people. But the thing that's gray about him is that, is it, like, you understand where he's coming from. So, like, I simultaneously think that if the moment he finds out that, like, guy is doing something bad, he'll shoot her in the head. But that doesn't mean that, like, he hasn't been wronged a lot. And I think that he plays the pain of it so well. He doesn't, I think there's an, it's easy for a character who is easy quick to kill people who is violent to come off as insane and at no point do you think this guy's insane you think that he just has a very different worldview than you do but he I, I he feels in control like the moment they got the guy out of the meat locker you knew damn well he was getting two in the head yeah. when the moment they got somewhere isolated like th- that that type of thing is i think when you're in this type of story where everyone's kind of morally gray, where everyone's done bad things, I think it's helpful to have a person who kind of is not, who who, who you pretty clearly can say, like, this dude takes no prisoners in a bad way. Yes. Yes, I would tend to agree with that. And I think that that bitterness, I, that, that bitterness is like, it it, it it comes off him. Like, it's, a, it's this aura to a degree that you see from him. So I'm... I, that I'm excited for more than anything else. Uh, Joanne, I wanted to ask you about this whole Super Scroll thing. Yeah. And we're starting to see the, the the experiments and everything going on with that. It's, wow. It's, I, I, I'm curious to see it. I'm guessing that obviously we saw briefly in one of the TV spots that Gravik clearly gets the the powers. I wonder who else will. That, that that's that's a question that I'm intrigued about. How about you? Oh, um, you mean like his second in command or Gaia? Yeah, or, or maybe God. even per- perhaps somebody like Gaia. Yeah, at some point if she's she's uh, investigating it, it herself, it would be extremely fun to see two foot tall Amelia Clark like punch someone through a wall or something. Extreme, like extremely fun. Yeah, extremely <laughs> fun. But yeah, super to to Dave's point, Super Soldier Serum. When has that ever gone wrong in a uh, you know in, <laughs> in a Marvel story? Like here we are back again with probably something in a vial that's going to be injected into someone, and and we'll see how it goes. Um, I 
I, yeah, who's gonna who's gonna be super powered? I feel like they've they haven't done a tremendous job of making us care about too many scrolls at the camp, other than Gravik and Gaia. Uh, not even yeah. his second in command, who like knows more than Gaia does. Like, do I? He just really makes care faces. About? Yeah, a lot of a lot of faces. <laughs> yeah, a lot of pain. And faces. he's just someone that like she can follow around and eavesdrop on and stuff like that. So, um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, the the super scroll stuff is kind of interesting, but it is. It's much more MCU than it is the espionage angle. You know what I mean? And yeah. I, I'm I'm even more interested. I'm so much more intrigued by what's going on with Nick Fury's wife. You know what I mean? Like, or, or who else will reveal themselves to be a scroll? And, you know, is it also the president of the, you know, is it Dermot Mulroney? Is it this? Is it that? The other thing. And then also something that we were talking about last week on the pod that, like, I would really love to see if if Rhodey is a scroll. I really hope before the end of the series we get to see like the real Rhodey like try to es- like escape his current circumstances or you know what I mean. Like I would like to spend time yeah. with real Rhodey, or maybe that's just what Armor Wars is going to be to Dave's point. Um, we'll see. Oh no, it'll be it'll be interesting for sure. Now on the you you mentioned Fury's wife. Now Dave, out of curiosity yourself, when you see that situation, it's the classic meme. Does he know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Does he know? uh yeah i think i i think he does there's something about it deepens the at the very least it deepens him knowing deepens the conflict because there's a difference if nick fury and carol danvers promise a home planet carol danvers leaves for space and nick fury's like well let's build up shield around this hydra shell that's you know like vaguely here uh versus a nick fury that like has genuine reasons because he's married into uh, this other population. It makes him much more conflicted. I think if he knows, uh, especially giving uh, the speech to Talos earlier on the train where he's like, we don't have room for this other species, my wife. Uh, It it adds a whole different uh, level to it and to why he'd want to keep her safe. Uh, or what happened to sort of separate her involvement from Nick Fury's super spy? Like, has she been coming up to Saber to do like weekly visits or something? Or did he Con- abandon conjugals? his wife? Are there conjugals yeah. on Saber? Is that your question? Were they playing yeah. doctor? Yeah, yeah. yeah playing some doctor. <laughs> yeah, it, I think it it's actually cooler if uh, he does know. But I see why they ended the episode the way he did. Because now we get to talk about if he knows for a week. Uh, before they, I'm sure it starts uh, 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 episode three with some clarity, or at least include it in the beginning. But I think it's yeah, Fury. Fury might not be as behind the ball as he appears. He just mm-hmm. might be slightly further ahead than even we're thinking, mm. because he's more personally invested in it. So like he knows about this. Uh, there's still a big question mark about uh, if uh, how Gravik was involved with the death of Talos's wife, Gaia's mother. Uh, I assume we're going to get more about that to see that. Uh, but also, like, yeah, this idea that maybe he and Gravik and his wife had a little family unit. And it's Gravik's not just a scroll warrior. He's Nick Fury Jr., essentially. And so yeah. we have this sort of familial uh, spy versus spy, uh, except one's willing to cross lines that the other one uh, apparently hasn't been. 
And I think yeah, it, and yeah, like, jo- jo- Joanna. Before you go, I just wanted to ask you because it's it's the say it's the same thing. But do you think that it's does it change anything for you to say if it's possible that Fury doesn't know? I was listening to the Midnight Boys, and it seemed like they had a they had a they had a different view on this as far as that's concerned, and they thought that if Fury didn't know. That would that would not be something that was great for him and just the overall look at the series. How about you? Let's say he didn't know. Yeah. Well, the question is like, has she? Oh, the there are flavors of he didn't know. Has this person right. always been a scroll, or did he marry a human person and they were then are now like in a fracking pod somewhere, dead? You know, being impersonated <laughs> by a by a scroll. Um, I agree with Dave. I think it's more interesting if he knows. But um, I can see the, like, the deep tragedy. Like, he's trying to hold on to some semblance of, like, a pro scroll sentiment because that is something that he has had since the 90s, you know? But, like, if he finds out that in his very, his very home has been invaded, you know, that's, that's sort of a different thing. So, like, I, I would prefer Dave's version. I could see that they could make some meat out of the other version. But I think to go back to that roadie, to to the roadie Fury conversation where he's talking about what connects us, right? Like, we're both black men. Like, let's talk about the things that connect us. And I think that idea of, like, who is us and who is them is one of the more interesting things that the series can explore. At what point is the scroll still other? How long does Talos have to wear Ben Mendelssohn's face and like be your ally for him to be an us? Or is he always going to be a them? Or for Talos, when his literal daughter is on the opposite side of a conflict, like are they a them? Are they a father-daughter unit? Or are they forever separated by ideology um on this per- on this particular thing. So I think to take that theme which is just going to echo through all these relationships and bring it right into the home of like who, are we in us uh you know yeah. a married couple or are we are you with them? And um that's that's pretty fascinating to me. Mm, interesting. And how about you Jake? What did you think of the whole So does he know? I think he knows because I think because it's more interesting and because I feel like if you're gonna do that he doesn't know, I feel like introducing the wife character just to do that is like a hat on a hat of ideas. You know, like <laughs> you because if if Nick Fury's wife was introduced four years ago, that would be one thing. But I think to introduce to have the surprise of oh my god, Nick Fury has a wife, and then like if two episodes later it's the rug is pulled, then I'm kind of like. Well, I didn't know we had a wife until two episodes ago, so this is only so much of a rug pull. Um, but and I also think that like they—I don't know if this actually matters—but they did mention earlier in the series that wearing basically your human face full time makes you harder to detect. And so I almost think that the fact that we first see her as a scroll implies to me that she's clearly not that worried about passing muster. That I might just be reading too much into that. I that mm. small one. The line that they threw in clearly just because Ben Mendelsohn and Amelia Clark didn't want to spend every day in the makeup chair for five hours. Um, <laughs> uh, but, and so, and so like, and, and I also think that like Nick Fury is a comp, I think that he is a man of contradictions in a way that it would make more sense to me if he 
were to be married to a scroll. Now, what does it say that he's married to a scroll and he asks her to put her human face on at home? That is a complicated question <laughs> that I don't even want to touch. <laughs> I don't even want to pretend that's a metaphor for something. But like that is an, that is a very interesting. But genuinely, that is a thing that I don't know if they would ever want to explore. But like, if he does know, then like that's kind of shitty for her that every time her husband comes home, she has to pretend to be a thing she's not. I don't know. That was a thing that I thought about. Um, if with the assumption that he knows. Um, but right. yeah, I, I think that that was a good way to end the episode, especially because I feel like, um, you know, we know stuff about Nick Fury, but we really don't know a lot about Nick Fury. He's kind of an unknowable yeah. guy. And like, it's not really, it, it kind of makes sense that he has something to go back to because it's not like, you know, that you can imagine him in, in, in the nineties, he's already a pretty old guy. And I think you can imagine him not ever thinking he'd settle down, but then in the process of trying to rehome the scrolls, he finds someone, et cetera, et cetera. And so like, I like that for him, and I think it adds another thing for him to lose. Not that I think he will lose it, but it adds a, another bit of, like, tethering to the ground. Because at the moment, he's kind of unmoored. Yes, yes, I would agree with that on, on that statement. But I would be I would be remiss if I didn't get to mention Olivia Coleman's performance in this episode. You want to talk about the efficiency levels? <laughs> just briefly, just being on screen and just killing it? Yeah. My goodness gracious. Uh, Dave, I'll start with you. That that interrogation scene as she's casually just tor- not only torturing this guy, uh, reading the reading the dude who she gives the phone to and telling him to, to make yourself scarce, like all that stuff. <laughs> what did you think of that? Because I, it was one of those things where you have all of these performances going around in this episode and she just casually just walks in and for in basketball terms, she just a casual 30 and 20 minutes of screen time. So 20 minutes on the court, just incredible stuff. Yeah. We're really back to, you know, British TV uh, comedy, Olivia Colvin. And uh, I love it. Um, Yeah. I think there's a real power in realizing you have like, that scene uh right in a in a television an espionage television show like you get sort of the torture scene where we're on your side technically because we don't want the scrolls to you know blow everything up but also like you immediately go to cutting a guy's finger off and giving him boiling blood uh so (laughs) it's it's a real um i think smart decision for her to play it as light and as smiley olivia coleman as she does, because it distracts from the fact that she's uh, the new Nick Fury in terms of person who has it all together. She walks in, she knows what she's going to do. She moves all the other guys out so they could buy her some time to open the escape hatch, which she asks about. Like she knows how all this is going to go down uh, the second she walks in there and walks in with that confidence. And so playing it that confidently and then never letting that, uh, performance slip so that even like she looks a little perturbed that the escape hatch is maybe too small so she has to hunch over <laughs> like I think it's just a, a brilliant decision the the acting on the show is what's bringing me to the table every week and then sort of the the mysteries of it are sort of secondary to maybe letting me hang on a cliffhanger but I just want to see these people do stuff like Olivia Coleman torturing a person or uh, <laughs> Sam Jackson just having the perfect monologue for every morally comprehensible situation. I, I, I'm really enjoying it. 
Yes, yes. And and Joanna, mm-hmm. so Sonia may not have a washed agenda, but she does have an agenda. What do <laughs> yeah. you think it is? <laughs> well, I think what they mentioned in episode one is that she she would do scorched earth on the scrolls. Like that she is um her agenda differs from uh Fury and Talos in that she's like uh, any scroll is a is an enemy, right? And Fury and Talos are trying to thread the needle a bit more and be like, listen, there are scrolls that are allies, scrolls like deserve a home, all this sort of stuff like that. And I think her agenda is uh we've been invaded, these are all enemies, these are all others, eliminate them. So it becomes like a race against her to get the information because she will just decimate everyone. Um, I think is like where she is on the spectrum of scroll acceptance. Um, and I love what I love in the, uh, in the spy genre, something you guys were talking about last week is the, in the wash agenda umbrella is the idea of like, uh, this isn't, this isn't the war you used to fight or whatever. And what I love, uh, what I love even more is an es- in the espionage uh, genre is two spies who have, gone through this before and maybe been on opposite sides or maybe been on the same side but like they've known each other longer than the wars that they fought you know what i mean and so their relationship is just something else and so i loved the fury and sonia scene in episode one and i love that she's here Mm -hmm. as this other shadowy operative on the board and like yeah her her ability to know that she would need an escape hatch you know and just you know just a sense she has and her like almost Dolores Umbridge-esque like approach to torture except like it's it's fantastic to watch Coleman is just yeah crushing it. oh my goodness yeah she's ahead of the curve and and, and Jake I, I know you yeah. want to give flowers so yeah I, I think flowers. the thing is because I, I think that a lot of times since I do the show uh, a lot of people will you know interrogate me about why what makes the MCU not bad and I don't often have an answer but the thing about it that I always think separates it from a lot of the franchise stuff is that and I'm sure you guys know because you did a book on it, but it really feels like more than almost any other franchise, it just lets actors have scenes like this that they can just kind of go big and um, have fun. And like Olivia Coleman, I think, is someone that a lot of American audiences might mistake in thinking that she's a deeply serious person <laughs> and she's really not at all, which is what makes her delightful. Uh, and I, because I said on last week that I'm glad we're getting uh, fun Olivia Coleman. Um, and yeah, I'm I'm also just a sucker for a gleeful torture scene. It's a really it's a morally horrible thing about me, but the more violent <laughs> someone is being, if they're happy about it, I always will enjoy it and then be like, I shouldn't have enjoyed it that much. <laughs> Sounds like an old Jack Bauer fan over there. <laughs> no, well, oh, Jack, Bauer, no. Jack Bauer is not very gleeful about it. He feels like he, it's that that actually that's what I'm not thinking of. <laughs> Shout out to twenty four though. No, Dave, that's that's my corner. Yeah. yeah <laughs> but uh yeah, so I and I think that like um you know, giving her Making her the uh, the opposition of not like the inverse of Nick Fury, where like I suspect that by the end she'll probably get some type of comeuppance for this, but she seems to be thinking that she's fully in control of the situation, whereas Nick Fury doesn't feel like he's at all. And so I think that giving her even just small amounts of screen time to like show the the difference between where Nick Fury really has not made any progress on anything, uh, he's only lost stuff, whereas she kind of feels like she's making moves, doing stuff. Um, but yeah, I just was great. Yeah, really just, I think that anything about this show that I have issues with, it really is just a testament to the power of Marvel that there's a show that you have. You can say like, oh my God, there's a show where Samuel L. Jackson, Don Cheadle, Olivia Coleman, and Ben Mendelsohn are all actually like giving actor, capital A acting performances on. Like that's a special thing no matter what. Um, and so yeah, I just wanted to throw Mendelsohn in there to throw him, give him his flowers. Um, 
I really one of my goals in life is to get to a place where I can call him Mendo because it feels like everyone who works with him calls him that, and that would mean a lot if I could do that. So, oh, amazing. Okay. <laughs> I do before because I do want to ask Dave and Joanna about the about their book uh, coming in October. But before we do that, I do want to go around the room and and ask what are we looking forward to the most in the next episode or for the or for the season. Uh, just just curious, uh, Joanna. I'll start with you. Uh, is there any particular thing that you're looking forward to finding out or seeing? Yeah, I'm going into this, you know, like there's so many great actors in the show, but I am a huge Kingsley Benadir fan. And so I think that like we got some good graphic in this episode, but I would love to, I can't wait to see him interact on a more sustained basis with Nick. That's my hope uh, to see that like, you raised me sort of resentment directly from him. Also something that they engaged with a bit in episode one that I'm curious to see how it pans out is like, what kind of leader is he? What kind of like, um, you know, because his second in command is like, you know, you're the mission. He's like, I'm nothing. I'm not the mission. The mission is this bigger thing. And so when you think about these kinds of leaders of these uprising, it's like a cult of personality almost with graphic. Like he, he just commands that whole scroll council room and he wasn't even invited to the meeting. And then he's like in charge of everyone. Okay. You know what I mean? And so like, I'm just fascinated by graphic and I know that he Kingsley Benadir is capable of so much. So that's what I have my eye on for sure. Mm, yes. Yes. And, and Dave, how about you? Uh, similarly, I want, I want the parent showdown. I want Fury, graphic Talos, Gaia four way showdown where everybody realizes nobody knows what who who is any on anybody's team because it's just about these personal issues between these four characters. I I know that a Marvel series has an expectation to sort of go big at the end. I would love it if this one did the inverse and went really small. Mm-hmm. Uh, Your I think lips be, to God's ears. Oh, yeah, I geez. think it'd be great. Yeah. Interesting. And how about you, Jim? I want them to, I, I want to see, because I think, I think, because Joanna was talking about she's not that interested in the superpower school thing, which I actually agree with, because I think the thing that they introduced in the first episode, which they kind of dropped, is I think the idea of them in, that the scrolls are immune to radiation, therefore meaning if humanity destroyed itself in a nuclear holocaust, they could just live there. I almost wish they didn't, I don't need the superpower school things. I just wish they tried to start, like, if the whole thing was just about them trying to start World War III, I think that would be very mm. interesting. And so what I hope we have, and I'm looking forward to, is high stakes political, is there going to be a scene in a situation room where one country might need to nuke another and one of the people in the room is, like, is there going to be a Cuban Missile Crisis, but one of the people involved is a scroll? Like, that type of thing. I mean, that's why espionage stuff around the 60s is always so interesting, because it's, the, the tension's so high. And so, like, not just because I'm always happy to see more Dermot Moroni. Shouts to him, by the way, in solidarity. Well, one of the realists. Um, uh, I I want to see like what is it like if there is a White House, big White House scene where someone so- is like, "Wait, I'm a scroll. Don't send that nuke or send that nuke. This, that, or the other." Because um, the stakes there. I mean, like, I think that you know. The stakes of when nuclear weapons are involved is the highest stakes we can have as people. And so, like, I think that if they leave, if they just leave that as an aside line in episode one and don't actually come back to it, I think that's a huge missed opportunity because, you know, what's the point of introducing the president as a character and implying that the so showing that the prime minister of the UK is a scroll if you're not going to have actual wars yeah. or, you know, threats of wars between countries? Are you shouting yeah, out? You shouting out? 
Dermot Mulroney for walking off the view? Is that what you're shouting at? Yes, and also because he's oh, yeah. apparently been on the picket line the whole time. I mean, just oh, in yeah. terms of actors, he's been like one of the most yeah. vocal. Um, I, you know, I AC can tell you I've been keeping track of any time an actor is. Uh, I'll always post it in our Discord because I'm, you know, it, you, we, you see who does and you see who doesn't. Yeah. Yes. Yes. That definitely. That definitely matters. I think for me, I think whatever the consequences for Fury of this event, this series, intrigues me. Because clearly they've started. He's lost Maria Hill. He, he's at an impasse with Talos so far. How do those two kind of work their relationship back to standing and how he deals with Gravik? Like all of that considered, where does this end up for Fury in terms of how he not only sees the world and also the the power that he talked about, the power that he talked about having. It seemed like there was something that was important to him. What is it like if he loses that? How does he react? And seeing the personal story of Nick Fury is something that intrigues me overall because whether he wins or loses, clearly he's going to be in the Marvels. We're going to see him in there. What is What are those consequences? And are they significant enough that it may affect him? Or maybe it's an instance where it does affect him and he's still yet to not even know about it after this series because of the way that I see Secret Evasion, and we talked about it, me and Jake, before the series started, is that so the after effects of the invasion, the stuff that... Tell me something I don't know. Mm-hmm. What is he not going to know after this mm. series? Is that that intrigues me as well? So, so far, so far, so good. First two episodes. It should be interesting to see how it goes going forward. Now, before we go, I do want to ask you guys because not only Joanna and Dave and Gavin Edwards, they wrote a book that's coming out in October. MCU: The Reign of Marvel Studios. Writing a book during a pandemic about what the biggest <laughs> film franchise out there is seems like a lot. Uh, jo- uh, Joanna, I'll start with you. What what was this process like? How did it come together? Uh, I guess you could start there. Yeah, we started this pre-pandemic. We started this in 2019, mm. right around when Endgame, uh, you know, right after Endgame had dropped, basically, and Marvel was like unquestionably the biggest thing in the world uh pop culture wise um and it came the book came to us like a publisher came to us asking for like a history of marvel studios and i had written a marvel cover story for vanity fair and so you know they're like hey joanna seems like you like these comic book uh movies do you want to write a book about it and so it it changed and developed over the many years that we worked on it and the and the pandemic both slowed it down and sped it up at the same time because like the pandemic slows everything down. But at the same time, like a lot of us had a lot of time, including the people that we were interviewing. So like there were a lot of industry professionals who were just stuck at home and were like, (laughs) yes, sure. We'll talk to you for hours at a time about Marvel studios. Um, So that was in a way very helpful for us. Um, but I I appreciate how much time it took us to put this book together. Dave may not, but uh, I appreciate how much time it took us to put this book together <laughs> because uh, it means that while we were making it, 
the narrative on Mar- the narrative of Marvel changed so much between 2019 and October 2023 when this is going to come out. And so what started as a book about the biggest thing in the world has now become a book about yes, this was the biggest thing in the world. Right now it's experiencing something the cracks are showing uh in in yeah. this whole machine i think everyone agree even even marvel's biggest fans i think would agree that like the consistency mm-hmm. isn't as high as it used to be so that affords us the opportunity to say what happened or what was working so well about it before that is not working quite as well now like most of the book is still just like the history of it working well but when you get to the end and you get to look back you're like okay they built this unprecedented thing we got to talk to everyone about how they built it. Uh, we got to celebrate the movies that, uh, you know, Dave and Gavin and I all love. And then we get to sit and reflect and say, okay, what's changed? Or, you know, what what was, um, you know, the phrase we like to talk about is like unscalable. When they start to make more and more and more, more TV, more movies, et cetera. What, what is, um, what can you not scale up? And the answer, part of the answer to that is like uh, Kevin Feige is one man. And he is so crucial to the success of all of this. And um, unlike, you know, uh, cloning technology in the Marvel Universe, you can't clone Kevin Feige. So, like, you know, what are you what are you going to do? So it's it was it was fun and really challenging. And uh, we kind of had to battle a giant studio along the way in order to do it. And we came out the other side. So that's the story. No shout out to y'all, uh, Jake. Did did you have anything? I I, I had yeah, more. Yeah, I mean, I think that in, this is a relative, not relatively specific question, but I think that like, what going back to when people ask me to defend the MCU, the thing I always will say is like I point to a lot of the other big. Any other time someone tried to do a shared universe franchise, it's been a problem, and I, I'm curious, like what, what. What do you think it is that has prevented the MCU from ever having something like The Flash? Where, like, it's a, not just a disaster in the box office, but, like, I think I noticed about the MCU is that, obviously, there are behind-the-scenes issues or what have you. But, like, for a franchise as big as it is, it really feels like there hasn't been the big, like, movie that has a huge issue. And now I think there are some crack showing. But I, I'm just curious, what is it about? Is it just Kevin Feige? You're like, how do you how do they make a movie like Endgame, where there's clearly so many egos involved, and at the very least it never becomes an issue and you never, there's never email leaks about this, that, or the other. Am I I crazy? I think that that's a different thing about Marvel because it feels like every other time there's a failure, there's some type of like reckoning of like, well, this person donned this and this person did this and this person did that. I mean, I think what we found is it's Marvel, uh, a lot of the internal battles that also lead to its successes is about who has singular control over Mm -hmm. something. So uh, they have, you know, Kevin Feige at the top. He's apparently like a vibe guy. So he'll just meet with like directors and writers that he likes. And then when that, uh, when he's able to pair them with a project, uh, and a creative producer. They have a bunch of uh, producers below the Kevin Feige level, but still pretty high up that will stay with the project from conception all the way through editing. Uh, that allows for a certain degree of quality control, especially if you're only doing like two or three movies a year. That's very controllable uh, in terms of uh, making sure everything lines up. And because these people stay on it for the most part, you have your occasional uh, Edgar Wright or Joss Whedon situations where 
um, the process breaks them and they have to step away. But for the most part, it's pretty consistent. If there are problems, they're going to write out those problems with the same creatives. So you don't have something that happened with The Flash, which is three generations of WB executives messing with it on their way out. Uh, that doesn't happen. Uh, the Marvel uh, machine, for the most part, especially in Phase 3 and Phase 4, seems to be a little bit more like a family. I don't know if that's based on emotion or just based on the fact that, like, if you get a Marvel job and you do well, they're going to invite you back for something else. And that's consistent work, um, which, you know, sometimes could, it could hold people like VFX houses hostage. But for actual creatives, like, isn't it nice that Daniel Dustin Cretton did, did a Shang-Chi and now they're like having him come back for an Avengers movie. There's, there's a place to build there if you get along within the system. Mm -hmm. So I think it's just a matter of, there's not a question about who's in control. You know, Mm -hmm. if there's a DC leak, you're like, nobody's making jokes that David Zaslav's going to break down your door, but every MCU leak, there's a little meme about Kevin Feige, you know, sending assassins to you. So they, they have a a degree of control over the creative process, uh, which did make it difficult for Joanna and I to peer into it, but I think we managed to crack enough of it. And I think what was fun for us to track, because it is loosely chronological, this book, I think it was fun for us to crack was sort of like when they figured out that system, when they got everything under control, because it certainly like wasn't the case in the beginning. I think the closest thing most people would agree to the reception of the flash is the incredible Hulk, right? Like that, that is like mm-hmm. largely considered an unsuccessful uh, situation. And that was a lot of, different creative people trying to battle for control over that particular property. And we talked to someone who both worked on that film and then worked on um, Endgame, who talked about this idea of the uh, invention of the no assholes policy at Marvel, where it's just sort of like, (laughs) after that experience, they're like, we're hiring people, you know, and like, you know, a, a few assholes might have snuck in here and there, but like, they're like, we're hiring people who are not going to, you know, have an ego big enough that it's a problem or if there's someone with an ego big enough that it's a problem the the payoff is enough that we like are willing to placate it and i think that um i i think like the edgar wright situation is so interesting in that regard because edgar wright and ant-man was a project that they had from the beginning and it was just delayed for a bunch of different reasons and by the time the green light comes along for edgar wright to make ant-man it's a different studio than the one he signed on to from the beginning where it was a little bit more like you're the filmmaker, John Favreau, go make an independent movie. And it happens to be Iron Man. By the time they're doing Ant-Man with Edgar Wright, they're like, no, it's a, it's a tapestry. It's a sandbox and you have to play well with other people. And Edgar Wright's like, that's not really the movie that I signed up to do where I'm interested in doing, you know, and it doesn't make Edgar Wright an asshole and it doesn't necessarily make Marvel like an asshole. It's just sort of like a different environment and after that and this is something that feige himself told me after that it was just sort of like everyone who signed on understood understood that they were signing on to be part of a larger thing and so then you don't have those same problems because they're like oh i get it i'm not just telling my story i'm telling a a chapter in a larger book Mm. that they're trying to write you know uh yes i I, that a thing that i joke about a lot uh is that i because I, you know, try, kind of straddle both the MCU stuff and I also follow a lot of film Twitter and stuff like that. And it is very, it is funny in some ways to see the way that some people who are really into movies, and I think have a 
are smarter about the stuff than me will like talk about actors and writers as if they're being like held at gunpoint to do Marvel stuff. It's like, no, like they're getting paid a lot. And especially with actors, like it generally seems like they have a good time. Like I get it. I wish, you know, Mark Ruffalo did more indie dramas, but I think he probably likes playing the Hulk and likes the paychecks. Um, but yeah, that is, you know, <laughs> yeah, I think that is just notable because I think it, the flash is microcosm, but like, Think about how much I know way too much about bad stuff that happened in the DCEU. I shouldn't know all of these bad things that happened. Yeah. Uh, anyway, AC, I think you have more questions, though. Yes, I, I, I do. I I like the minutia uh, as far as, you know, the, the preparing of something like this, this undertaking that you guys did. What was the most interesting part of putting this together? Uh, Dave, I'll start with you, but both of you can answer. The most interesting from, like, a Marvel aspect? No, uh, interesting from you from a writing perspective. Oh, yeah. This is my first go at it. Uh, so I would do these things called like uh, vomit drafts, which is I had been I had like a weekly column about Marvel on a now defunct site called Latino Review for a long time from like, uh, I believe we started like right after Hulk. And then I think I went through like 2014. So I'd always been on the fan side of it. And like hearing things and like remembering parts of the coverage. So when it sat down to you know sort of collect these into a history, uh, I would make these vomit drafts just of like here's what we know, and then I would throw in some Joanna interview quotes, and it was great. And it was like I was so concerned with trying to get the flow right that eventually when we brought in Gavin, who's king of the flow, and he helped us get the flow right. Yeah, he was like, "All right, time for the end notes," and I was like wait, what? <laughs> and so uh, there was a very early version of this book that I had to spend two weeks going through redoing all of the research I did to get it to the first place. And if you want to talk about minutia, I will never do that again. All my books have stickies now. I have a <laughs> notebook for what I'm reading about things that I'm reading so I know how to get back to them. Uh, and that's not super marvelly, but definitely something that first-time authors should keep in mind, especially if you're doing nonfiction. Uh, keep a running list of your sources all the time. You would much rather cut those down after not needing them than ha have what happened to me, which is like, well, where are the endnotes? I'm like, ha-ha, yes, uh, of course. Oh, my God. <laughs> uh, and how about you, Joanna? Yeah, I think one of the most fascinating things for us outside of everything we learned about marvel which like we went in knowing a lot and we learned a lot as well is um discovering our own process like as dave just alluded to that like i did you know dave did the lion's share of our research i did all the interviews um like gavin puts together the flow and like and then you have three different people's um agendas or versions of the story or opinions on something that happened mm. that you have to like go you know so we would have constant zoom call conversations where we would sort of like wrestle back and forth you know and it's sort of like okay i'll concede this you concede this like that sort of stuff so like when you see multiple author names on something i am i personally am always curious how how it went and i think eventually we settled into this like pretty incredible flow um but trying to figure out it was a project that started just dave and joanna dave and joanna have known each other for years um and then we when we realized we needed help with the flow bringing gavin in who didn't know us like that that could have gone disastrously but it went really well at mm -hmm. the end of the day but it was just always interesting to me to have those conversations and it was good because um 
anyone knows this when you have an idea about something and someone comes in and like challenges you about it it just forces you to shore up your side of the argument with like more and more data or a better constructed argument so when either dave or gavin would like challenge me on something sometimes my side would just evaporate into the wind like dust and sometimes i was able to like construct a wall strong enough that i i could be like no we're holding firm on this and that was really that was really fun you know dave what what's your problem with jeff loeb some things are coming through on this chapter <laughs> and i'd be like oh all right oh man that's that's great uh joanna is kevin feige as interesting to talk to as we would think that he is he's so fascinating because he is like the Kevin Feige that you see in any interview or whatever, that's just like who he is all the time by all accounts. Anyone we ever talk to, he is extremely genial, extremely kind, uh, will remember everyone and every detail of everything that he ever talked to you about. Like, and, and, but the con like the sort of contradiction inside of Kevin Feige is like, you don't get to the top of, the biggest studio in the land by being a nice guy right so what else is going on there and what's true is that he is just brilliant beyond measure um uh like emotional intelligence all the sort of stuff like that so he's like he's the king of sort of staying quiet staying low staying friends with everyone while working things into the way that he wants them to be there's a lot of people we talk to about the early days of Marvel, like how he worked himself up the ranks. And it's just sort of like, he was just a quiet guy. He was always there. He was always quiet, always nice, always helpful, always had great ideas, you know? And it's just sort of like, um, and, and there are um, sort of contentious splits that happened in the beginning of the formation of Marvel studios, but both sides of that split still love Kevin Feige. So it's like, how, how did he do that? So when you sit down, as I got to talk to him for like multiple hours in his office, et cetera, like it's, um, he's nice and he's kind and he's all this sort of stuff. But like the, you see that the wheels are turning mm -hmm. and he's going to make sure to only tell you exactly what he wants to tell you and nothing more. And, um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's a little intimidating being around someone that smart. He's so <laughs> this, smart. There's a great quote in the book uh, from Dan Harmon where he's like, you can't fight Kevin Feige in the street because he would just be standing there being like, oh, I love that you're fighting me right now. This is so great. <laughs> and it's like, that's that's sort of the feeling. It's like, it's hard to counteract somebody who genuinely loves movies, has an amazing track record for being right, and then also isn't the type of person who's going to come in and yell at you if you do something wrong. He's going to address the problem in a very calm way. And so it's hard to have conflict with that type of person. There are only uh, like a few instances that we could probably count on one hand where it's like Kevin Feige lost his temper or Kevin Feige like. Yeah. And a bunch of them were at know. like Perlmutter, which makes a whole bunch of sense yeah. if you know anything about I mean, Marvel. Yeah. Well, hell yeah. We, we endorse that <laughs> in this podcast. I don't want to speak for AC, but uh, yelling at other no, Marvel I mean... is always okay. Um, <laughs> Yeah, and I think the thing is, and I, you kind of alluded to it, I think that the thing that, because, you know, when we started this podcast, the main thing was that a, Anthony grew up with comic books, and I didn't. I grew up with movies and TV. And I think the thing that I think is underappreciated about Kevin Feige is that, like, while he obviously does have a background in comic books, I think his... I always try to, like, justify a lot of the decisions he makes, like, being like, no, 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 he is not a comic book fanboy that's trying to get his stuff on screen. He is trying to make good movies and TV shows out of these things. And I think that, like, he 
the way he operates is a lot more similar to just like a good movie producer than it just happens to be making movies about comic books. You know, I think that that's the thing that's underappreciated about the decisions he makes and why they adapt things certain ways. It's like, no, 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 he's trying to make things. Cause like, I think I always say it's like my 58 year old dad who's never opened a comic book in his life has seen most of the Marvel stuff. It's not because Kevin Feige cares about making the biggest comic book fans in the world happy. Not that he doesn't like them, but he clearly has something beyond that. I think that that's the thing that's goes underappreciated when you're in the space that talks about these all the time. Well, I think what's interesting is that it's it, it is so incredibly both in that um, yeah. all of that is true, and that is like we we you know we talk to people who've known him a really long time who say things about like they don't think someone could have done what he did as a deeply insidery fanboy. You know what I mean? That like, and there was even like uh, Dave, you, you remember that like some point someone wanted us to call this book fanboy like about kevin feige and call it fanboy and we were like that's not who he is though or if he is that it's for like Mm -hmm. 80s and 90s blockbuster cinema it's not really for for comic books but i think that um that outsider perspective is so key but he also made himself an expert Mm -hmm. in like he intentionally just like sat down made himself an expert in comics knows more than a lot of people consider themselves experts in comics and values not shying away from the very comic booky nature of things so when yeah. you look at some of the films before the mcu mm-hmm. they were almost afraid to be comic book movies or afraid to like pursue the familiar costumes or whatever the case may be and so feige was always like no there's a reason this is a really popular medium it's a visual medium it's mm-hmm. all these other things and it's like we need to like not pretend we're not making a very faithful comic book movie but as you guys um mentioned on your secret invasion podcast last week um when you hear secret invasion show you'd be incorrect to think that that means they're making the secret invasion comic book it just means they're taking the concepts of the secret invasion comic book and putting it through as as a as a film and tv fan would a genre of interest aka the like the espionage genre you know Yes, yes, yes. Oh, one final one from me, and this this is for both of you. If you're talking to somebody who who's interested in buying this book and wants to get it, what is the one thing that would that you would say to somebody trying to get this book, and they would be like, "Ooh, I gotta get it because of this." Either of you, could I, can, I can start, Dave. If you, yeah, go ahead. Okay. <laughs> The thing that I love the most about our book and the thing that I've loved the most of hearing people who have gotten to read like advanced copies of it is they're like, it's so fun. And again, like, I think, I think that that, uh, has a lot to do with Gavin, but it also like, you know, Dave and I, we're fun. Like we're fun. People. Um, but it's not a dry business book and it's not a, like, um, you have to know everything about comics to understand it book. Um, I think it, it has a lot of detail, um, that I think people who who love Marvel already will learn new things from it. But I think, I mean, hopefully, you know, like Kevin Feige making a comic movie, we've also made it extremely accessible to anyone who doesn't know anything and is just kind of interested. And it's just like a fun, propulsive, again, it sounds like I'm bragging, so I'm just going to give all that credit to Gavin, like propulsive fun read. You're going to have a great time with it. It's a fun book. There you go. Dave? (laughs) Yeah, I would say um, that's our greatest selling point, I think, because it is a book uh for everyone and because of that i don't think it's really targeted to like the super fan if you're a marvel super fan we'll have some stuff uh 
that you know maybe you haven't heard about uh but will at the very least have a new perspective on how it fits into the whole picture uh if you haven't if you've watched you know just infinity war and endgame i think this book does a good example of uh showing the how the whole marvel cinematic universe came about and sort of rose to the top and uh most importantly if you're like a film nerd uh this book is just a great part of film history because it tells the story of how we took you know a marvel movie that basically gave the rights to blade away and then became by the time uh, infinity war and endgame uh, was happening every movie they were putting out was uh, you know earning a billion dollars they're introducing all this you know wacky comic book stuff to the 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 pop culture zeitgeist and in a time period where it was you know <laughs> endgame um premiered the same month that game of thrones ended so uh the culture latched on to a monoculture experience and for a while that was the mcu yeah so i think even if as long as that's something that's interesting to you one of those angles uh this book will deliver yeah yes yes oh, also go ahead sorry one last yeah i kept in my anxiety space writing a book because yeah this is the first book dave and i have ever written um in my anxiety space of writing it i kept going to like dave to gavin to anyone who would listen i'm like i don't know who this book is for like i don't understand like who is this book for and everyone's going i'm like it's for everyone joanna and i was like oh okay i was like is this a business book is this a fandom book is this like whatever and they're like no it's it's everything and i was like oh it's everything so yeah and i think it is at the end of the day very excited to read jake do you have anything else? no uh i'm excited that you guys gave your time i'm super excited to read the book i love any good oral history and i think that the thing you mentioned about the i think a, a perspective i try to bring when we talk about these things is from the film and tv production perspective because i think that there are a lot of people who want to talk about how they're adapting the comics and that is incredibly valuable too but it's like at the end of the day these are things that they are made in the same way that any other movie are made. And so I think that the the way the backroom stuff about that is something that I've always been interested in and I read anything I can. And so I'm very excited to see all of that, especially I want, I want, I'm excited to read perspectives of people who, you know, have been in the industry for 25 years and then started doing nothing but Marvel movies and things like that. Um, anyway. Yeah. I'm super excited to read it. That is awesome. Uh, Dave and Joanne, I want to thank you both for joining us today. This has been a lot of fun. Maybe perhaps if and when when this book comes out in October, uh, perhaps we can get you back on and talk about some of the more juicier details when we get a chance to read it. If you if I'm you, so if you like it, we'd love to have you back. I'm so curious what you will think is juicy. Like it's so, you know when you've like read your own thing too many times that you're like, what even, what are even are these words anymore? So I'm so, <laughs> I'm so excited to find like, when, when the book comes out, October 10th, when the book comes out, like, I'm so excited to hear, like, what people are most excited to read about, because I have no perspective on it at this point. So. Oh, man, it should be awesome for sure. Uh, Dave, yeah. first, where can where can we follow you? Where can we find your work? Uh, I'm on a Twitter right now as uh, DA7E. It's just Dave with the 7 instead of the V. Uh, I have a couple of podcasts. I'm on one with Joanna called Trial by Content on the Ringer Network. I have one called Fighting in the War Room, where we talk about uh, pop culture weirdness every week and have for like over 10 years. Um, and then I have a podcast with my friend Neil Miller, who runs Film School Rejects. That's a Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash DA70 and Neil. Neil spelled the traditional way. And then if you want to pre-order the book, uh, you can head to the mcubook.com and uh, follow some links there. You could buy it off the big sellers. You could buy it off independent sellers. Uh, Look it up. 
Awesome, awesome stuff. And Joanna, where can we follow you and find your work? Um, I'm on Twitter at Joe Wrote This. I'm on all social media as at uh, Joe Wrote This. My website is JoeWroteThis.com. Uh, and then you can find me on The Ringer on various podcasts like The Ringerverse, Prestige TV, and of course, Trial by Content with Dave and Neil. Awesome, awesome. And Jay Christie, where can we follow you and find your Well, work? obviously, I got just as much going on as these two. But you can follow me on Twitter, at the Jay Christie. Listen to the other podcasts I do with a Psych Rewatch podcast, at, uh, at First Psych. Um, Joanna, you can come on whenever you like. We're just starting season three tonight. Is it like bring your own pineapple situation? Uh, if you want to. The whole okay. idea is because it's me and my friend Andre, who had never watched it before. We previously did a whole, we went through all of Monk. Called, it was No Funkin' Strictly Monkin'. And then we did it for Psych um and so yeah we're doing that and yeah you know um uh, ac is going to give all the specifics to the general mcu stuff but just follow that you know join that etc yes 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 and of course you can follow me on twitter at anthony canton underscore three follow the show at mc university pod same thing on instagram same thing on the youtube channel check that out as well we also have a patreon patreon.com slash mc university pod where you can get our bonus content fast five is coming in july folks fast five we recorded a fast five episode should be a rip roaring adventure <laughs> for you guys to listen to and of course, in June we had the Daddy's Pod, the, the the Father's Day special, where where Jake and and pals ranked the ten MCU daddies. Yeah. It's a yearly thing we MCU do. Daddies. It's a yearly thing we do where for Father's Day we we basically five of us get pretty drunk and rank the top ten daddies in the MCU. It's pretty. It's a rip roaring time. Uh, like, it has like, to be like fathers or dads. No, like. Dad- it's it's become like a problem i think this year we went almost three hours um <laughs> it, it yeah uh i can't it has yes. to be behind the wall if i ever want anyone to look me in the eye again but it's a really great time <laughs> yes yes and and yeah so appreciate everybody for listening appreciate everybody for supporting make sure you five star this podcast as well so for joanna robinson and dave gonzalez and jake christie i'm anthony canton the third this has been marvel cinematic university and we'll talk to you next time